While not our text this morning, I'd like to start by reading some of Paul's well-known words to his protege, Timothy. So please turn to 2 Timothy 4, which can be found on page 996 of the Bibles provided. 2 Timothy 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. So, so here in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As we've looked at 2 Peter over these last few months, we've seen another apostle put Paul's words into action. Because it didn't take long for Paul's prophecy to be proven true, Peter is lovingly confronting believers to hold fast to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to not listen to false teachers who are claiming that Jesus is not coming back, and that there is no final judgment, so it doesn't matter how we live. Peter says that's not true. It does matter how we live, because Jesus is coming back, and there will be a final judgment. Peter reproves, rebukes, and exhorts as he challenges heresy. Sadly, in using Paul's words we just read, because it's true that many do not endure sound teaching but have itching ears, the false teachers of Peter's day made inroads into the visible church. And false teachers continue to make inroads into the visible church. And so Paul's exhortation to Timothy is no less relevant in 2018 than it was during the first century. Likewise, Peter's second letter is as timely and needed today as it was when he wrote it. When we first began looking at 2 Peter, I opened the series by reminding us with how society is urging us, urging Christians to stop making truth claims about God. They claim that that's arrogance on our part, the sin of certainty, which is the title of a book written by a false teacher named Peter Enns. Even professing Christians have joined in on the attacks. In running parallel with the false teachers that Peter was combating, one of the most prevalent and insidious heresies today is the false teaching called universalism, teaching that there is no final judgment and no eternal punishment of the wicked. Universalists proclaim that all people will one day be saved no matter what they believe and how they live. All sides of the mountain eventually reach God. Just keep, be, just keep being authentic in your climb, they claim. Universalists preach an anti-gospel. If sin even exists, they say, it doesn't matter because you'll be fine in the end. Live however you want. Ignore the standards of holiness and purity taught by legalistic Christians. Jesus doesn't care. Popular teachers, bloggers, and writers claiming to be Christians accept and teach universalism. And many professing Christians are slowly ingesting heresies deceitfully packaged with biblical words like love and grace. Over the last few years, I've sadly watched as friends and family members have embraced that error and are now giving evidence that they were never placing their faith in Jesus. My fear is that some of us in this room are tempted to discard the teachings of the prophets and the apostles and wander off into myths 
If that's you, my prayer is that you will hear the words of 2 Peter and repent of your itching ears and cling to Jesus, your only, your only hope in life and death. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, pursue godly living as a testament to God's grace and love. For those in this room who aren't currently tempted to wander off into myths, my desire this morning is for you to hear the words of 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18. And paraphrasing Mike from last week, prayerfully use Peter's admonishments and warnings as a guardrail to help you continue to keep your eyes on Jesus and your feet on the path of righteousness. You see, these last five verses of 2 Peter are basically all application. Peter has pulled all his arguments into his conclusion and delivers one final exhortation, list of exhortations to his readers. And we're going to look at these final five verses of exhortation under four headings. Be diligent, be discerning, be careful, and be growing. And I'll repeat each of those as we go through. But before we begin unpacking the text, let's read the text. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, which begins on page 1019 of the Bibles provided. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. I'll give you a moment to find your place. Please follow along as I read 2 Peter 3, verses 14 through 18. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So our first point, be diligent. Throughout this letter, uh, Peter's exasperation pops out. Wolves are preying on the sheep. Yet even above his exasperation and even anger, Peter's love for God's people dominates his tone. And we see that loving tone here. As he concludes his sometimes sharp and rebuking letter, Peter again calls the recipients beloved. And remember, keep this in mind, the false teaching that has crept into the church is an assault on Peter's own credibility, his own experience, his own authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. By entertaining the false teaching the recipients of this letter are, in essence, calling Peter a liar or a fool. It's a personal attack on Peter's character. And Peter's response is instructive for us. Those in authority, the, the, the elders of here at Arlington Baptist Church, parents, employers, teachers, kids who have been left in charge of younger siblings, how do you respond when your authority is challenged? In anger devoid of any charity? Do you take it personally and use your authority as a bludgeon to, to vindicate yourself, to prove that you're right and that they're in sinful rebellion? Peter here is modeling part of what Paul means with his admonition in Ephesians 4.29, to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And he's also heeding James' warnings about how destructive the tongue can be. So Peter's primary concern isn't with vindicating himself or establishing his authority. Out of love, he's concerned for the well-being of his readers. His desire is to edify, to build up, to give grace. Does that same concern characterize us when we speak to those who are under our authority? By God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we should strive to speak with charity and the desire to build up and edify those whom we're speaking to, even if they've hurt us or insulted us. And Peter's specific desire in how he wants to build up his readers is the meat of our first point. So look again at verses 14 through 15a. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. In a nutshell, Peter desires for his readers to be diligent in pursuing godliness. And Peter's desire is because Jesus is coming back. Thomas Schreiner says, The eschatological future becomes the basis for ethical exhortation. Peter is saying, Therefore, because of our hope in the new heavens and new earth in which God's righteousness dwells, which he wrote about in the previous verses, therefore be diligent in pursuing godliness. Already at the the beginning of his concluding remarks, Peter is revisiting the themes that have dominated this letter. In the previous verses, Peter has explained that God's people wait and hope for the day of the Lord when Jesus will return. Here in verse 14, he writes an assumption, since you are waiting for these. Being a follower of Jesus means waiting for his return. It's part of what being a Christian is. Are you waiting for his return? And that's not a passive waiting, as as we'll look at in a minute. Think about it, though. How many times last week did your prayers reflect a hopeful longing for the return of Jesus? In his first letter, Peter says that we're sojourners and exiles. If you believe that to be true, then it doesn't make sense to not long for home. Unfortunately, Because of the context of many of us in this room, a context of overwhelming comfort and plenty, we are tempted on an almost constant basis to believe that we are home. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not. We're not home. Long for Jesus to come back. Peter's not finished, though. Not only are Christians to be waiting for Jesus' return, we are to be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Diligent is a word that has lost some of its force due to overuse, like the word literal. We ask, how is he as a worker? The response often is, he's a diligent worker. Well, maybe, but diligent doesn't just mean faithful. It also means energetic. The Greek word translated diligent here has to use speed wrapped up in it. It denotes extra energy. And look, I'm not... I'm not trying to make us feel guilty because we don't bound out of bed at 5.30 in the morning and run to our Bible without stopping for a cup of coffee. I just want us to feel the extra force of Peter's exhortation here. We're not, supposed, we're not just supposed to be faithful in doing these things we're about to look at. We're supposed to throw ourselves and our energy into being found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And that's something we can all pray for, for the grace to not just adhere to the faithful aspect of diligent, but the energetic desire aspect too. And energetic looks different across differing life circumstances. 
Often it manifests itself in joy. You don't have to bound out of bed at 5.30 in the morning. The first two words in this grouping, spot and blemish, are metaphorically pointing to the Old Testament sacrificial system. The, the sacrificial lamb was to be without spot and blemish, and the metaphor calls for purity. Peter is exhorting us to be pure in our affections for Jesus, to not be found with divided loyalties, to not be found to, to be clinging to identities other than our identity in Christ when he returns. And this is, so this is welded to waiting for the return of Jesus. Christians belong to God's family. We're citizens in Christ's kingdom. We're Jesus' bride bought with the priceless dowry of the blood of the Son of God, the true and only spotless lamb found without blemish. As such, and as mentioned earlier, our hope, our desire should be pointed forward. And because of that, we should have the desire to be found utterly devoted to Jesus when he returns. And, and your desire for Jesus' return is going to affect how you interact with this. If you don't desire his return, this isn't really going to take root in your heart, I don't think. So going deeper into the metaphor, only Jesus is perfectly without spot or blemish. Only Jesus is perfectly pure. He never cheats on his bride. By repenting of our sins and placing our faith in him, his spotlessness, his lack of blemish, his perfect obedience, his purity is accounted to us in Christ God judicially sees us as spotless and without blemish. On the last day, however, unbelievers will be justly condemned because they will be found still blemished, still impure, still in their sins. And while the Bible nowhere teaches that Christians can achieve sinlessness in this life, being in Christ means that on the last day, Christ's righteousness guarantees us those who are placing their faith in Jesus, entrance into God's final rest in the new heavens and the new earth. And by our lives, we give evidence in this life that we are Christ's. By pursuing godliness, we are being diligent to be found without spot or blemish. We're demonstrating our purity in Christ. So, so Christian, pursue godliness as you eagerly await the return of your King. Use God's word as the rubric for your decisions, all of them. Don't shy away from asking about hobbies or, or entertainment options or, or when you're considering pursuing a new career path or a move, anything. Is this helping me become more like Jesus or is it a hindrance? The reality is that there are things that are not sinful that are a hindrance for some of us. Keep in mind, Christian liberty can easily become as much of an idol as anything else. We can become more devoted to our Christian liberty than we are to the one who gave us that liberty, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And this brings us to Peter's exhortation to be found at peace. I believe that the most natural interpretation within the context is that Peter is referring to at peace as opposed to at war. Here's what I mean. As I've repeated throughout this series, because Peter constantly repeats throughout the letter, there, that he's dismantling the notion that there is no coming judgment. So contradicting the false teachers, Peter declares that the wicked, those in rebellion against God, will suffer his wrath on the final day. God will go to war on them in a sense, and that war will terminate in the eternal punishment of the wicked. When Jesus returns, we don't want to be counted among the wicked. We want to be found at peace with God through faith in Christ. And this raises an important question. 
How can I be found at peace with God? Well, start with recognizing that you are a sinner, that you were born in rebellion against your Creator and have continued in that rebellion. Repent of your sin and place your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus did what we cannot. He obeyed God perfectly, and then He willingly went to the cross to bear the punishment for the sins of God's people. Three days later, He rose from the dead, vindicating His claim to be the Son of God. Repent and believe on Jesus. That's how you can be found at peace on the final day. And Peter has another exhortation in this first section. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Believers in Peter's day were beginning to wonder why Jesus was taking so long to return. And that was uh, over 2,000 years ago. No doubt many of us probably wonder why Jesus is taking so long to return. Well, earlier in this chapter, Peter has already told us that God's patience is a blessing. Jesus won't return until all of God's children have been saved. In a book that the elders read for our Elders Day Away this past week, the author says that after Jesus' ascension back to heaven, he sent his spirit out into the world to woo a bride for himself from among the nations. God the Holy Spirit was sent to call sinners to renounce their idolatrous ways and to worship God the Father through his Son. What a wonderful truth. And that truth, the truth that God is saving His children should cause us to share the gospel with our unsaved friends and family. God has promised to save His children and that promise gives us the confidence to boldly speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our second point. Be discerning. So look with me again at verses 15b through 16. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. I've joked that when I get to heaven and when I run into Peter, I'm going to quote this passage to him and ask if he was being ironic. I mean, Peter's no slouch when it it comes to being hard to understand from time to time in this letter. But as often as that part of the verse gets quoted, I'm sure most of us have heard that verse quoted um, about Paul writing things that are hard to understand. That's not Peter's emphasis here. I believe the emphasis is found in two places. The wisdom given him and the implied warning in the example of the ignorant and unstable twisting scripture. To start with, where do we think wisdom comes from? Specifically, our wisdom. I'm sure that many of us could give the good and true Sunday school answer from Proverbs 1-7 that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But do we really believe that? At the ground level, let's back up some. At the ground level, do we really believe that? Sadly, we often miss opportunities to praise and give thanks to God because we fail to acknowledge that he is the author of all knowledge and wisdom. Often we only give thanks to God when he helps us overcome something, accomplish something uh, that we're not naturally good at. When we accomplish something at work that is in our cognitive wheelhouse, we often don't think of God, because we did it. I know this. I learned this. I mastered this. This is my knowledge. And this is important in Peter's context of combating false teachers because the false teachers like those of today were claiming that knowledge is produced by humans. Hence, humans 
can ultimately stand in judgment over the Bible. And the attitudes that fail to recognize that God deserves praise for all our knowledge and ability and accomplishments, and the gap between the belief that knowledge is produced by humans, that gap is much smaller than many of us are willing to admit. Failing to give God praise for all of our knowledge, wisdom, and accomplishments shows that a compromised worldview still exists in our heart. And that compromised worldview can easily grow into full-on rebellion if we don't repent and submit to God's authority over all knowledge. And a picture of that full rebellion is seen in the false teachers here. For false teachers of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, humans have the right to stand in judgment over God's word and decide which parts to accept, which parts to discard, and which parts to manipulate in order to make more to make the Bible culturally palatable. So, when the well-known blogger Jen Hatmaker announced her support for same-sex marriages, she was placing herself in a position of authority over God's Word and indicating that she believes that humans are the source of knowledge and wisdom. It's no wonder that she now aligns with the false teachers of Peter's day that denied the coming judgment. Universalism is often the heretical ending for those who begin submitting the Bible to their own wisdom and knowledge. As hard as something like that may be to hear, it's important that we submit the responses we have to our preferred bloggers, writers, and speakers to the objective truths of the Bible, objective truths given by God. And that includes those of us who teach and preach here at ABC. We are to be held to the same standard that I just held Jen Hatmaker to. If the elders of ABC allow teachings that contradict the Bible and the gospel, the, the congregation of ABC has a responsibility to hold us accountable. And we all need to be holding ourselves to that same standard. Are you submitting your opinions and feelings to the objective truths God has revealed in His Word? Or do you attempt to massage what you read or hear from the Bible into a position that matches what you believe or feel is true or what you want. This past week, Pew Research released a new poll revealing that while very few Americans think that they reject God altogether, most Americans, even those professing to be Christians, worship God on their own terms, often folding elements of mysticism and New Age religions into their worship of God. This aspect of Peter's emphasis in this passage on Paul having been given wisdom from God is vitally important for us to understand. Because as Peter continues, we learn that Paul's writings carry an inherent danger for those who refuse to submit to God. The refusal to recognize that all knowledge comes from God and that we are to submit how we relate to Him, to His revealed Word, is a plague on our society. It's almost inescapable. And it's dangerous. Look again at the dire words of verse 16, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. When we looked at the first 13 verses of chapter 3 a couple of months ago, we noted that the false teachers deliberately overlook this fact. Verse 5, false teachers know what the Bible teaches, but they choose to ignore it or they change it to suit their own desires. But as Peter keeps reminding us, doing so ensures that they will enter eternity under the wrath of God. It doesn't matter how often or how loudly they deny God's judgment. It doesn't matter how often CNN puts them on TV to say it. 
God has plainly and frequently revealed to us in His Word that rebellion against Him results in eternal punishment. False teachers are twisting God's Word to their own destruction. Do not follow after them. And notice how Peter extends the claim about Paul's writing to include the whole of the Bible. As an apologetics note, a Christian apologetics note. While Peter was writing 2 Peter, the Holy Spirit had yet to finish inspiring the New Testament canon. Yet Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is already viewing and calling Paul's letters Holy Scriptures. One of the current, yet not new, attacks on Christianity is the claim that first century Christians didn't view the books of the New Testament as authoritative. That, that belief, that, that teaching, that false teaching is, they say that that's a doctrine that was later imposed by Rome in the 4th century. Well, as 2 Peter 3.16 says, that, that's not true. So, there is an inherent call to discernment in these verses. Internally combating the influence of false teachers who twist scriptures to their own destruction <laughs> demands knowing what the Bible says and teaches. So, you may think that we harp too much on Bible reading and Bible study from this pulpit, but I promise you that we're not going to stop. Christian, you need, need, not should, need. I have it highlighted in my manuscript. You need to be reading and studying the Bible. You have brothers and sisters in Christ throughout this world and throughout the ages that that eagerly desired the luxuries that we have in regards to the Bible. And as odd as this may sound to our phonetically busy DC ears, we actually have more free time than most of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the ages had. None of us have to use all of our waking hours scrounging for food so we don't starve to death. We have the time to read the Bible. So the question is, how are you using your free time? And we all have free time. If you tell me you don't, I may not say it to your face, but I'm thinking you're not telling me the truth. We all have free time. Do you prioritize reading and studying your Bible, or do you prioritize other pursuits and get to your Bible only on the days when you have extra free time? And if you're desiring to spend more time reading and studying your Bible but aren't sure how to go about it, Good news, as William has already talked about this morning, Mike has graciously offered to service by leading a discipling 001 class this year. Join his class. And if you don't want to, which I don't know why you wouldn't want to, but if you don't want to do that but still want help, ask one of the elders for advice. We'll be happy to help you develop a Bible reading and study plan and to hold you accountable. In fact, you should be holding us accountable too. We should be holding each other accountable. Ask about each other's Bible reading and study, and be prepared to be asked in return. Growing in discernment is important for our Christian growth and for being able to combat the influence of false teachers. Reading and studying the Bible is one of the means of grace that God has ordained to grow us, and we need to be actively pursuing discernment because Peter's next exhortation is our third point. Be careful. So verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The word therefore again. Therefore, because the false teachers are twisting scriptures to their own destruction, 
be careful that you're not misled and then give evidence that you were never really placing your faith in Jesus. With the phrase, knowing this beforehand, Peter is not so subtly folding those who are carried away with the error of lawless people back into those from verse 5 who deliberately overlook this fact. Peter's saying, look, I've not only taught you the true gospel of Jesus Christ and its ethical dimensions, I've also told you how the false teachers operate. If you're carried away by their errors, it's a deliberate choice on your part. You know the truth, but like the false teachers, you are deliberately overlooking the truth in order to self-justify your rebellion against God. And parents and those who teach our children, there is an important warning for us in this. Can we honestly claim, like Peter, that those whom God has charged us to teach and train know the truth? Are we making sure that the children of ABC are learning about who God is and what he expects from his image bearers? Are we making sure that they understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus is coming back one day to reward the righteous and judge the wicked? And you can't assume that those of us who preach have that covered for you. Most of your kids aren't even listening to me right now. It's amazing what you can see from up here. So parents, don't presume that others are teaching your children or that your children are even listening to others. Take ownership of over your kids' gospel training. Catechisms are a great aid in that. And once again, Mike would love to help you out with that. It's rare that he doesn't have a copy of his favorite catechism with him. He would be more than happy to help you procure your own copy if you ask. So moving forward in verse 17... Because we've been taught and warned, we need to make sure that we're not carried away with the error of lawless people. And the word error here could also be translated wander. It's the word Paul used in the passage in 2 Timothy we looked at earlier. And Peter is making two parallel points with the use of that word. First off, he's reiterating that the false teachers once were, or even still are, professing Christians. These are not complete outsiders trying to destroy us. These are people who once claimed to believe what Peter and Paul and Jesus taught, but have since denied important parts of the gospel and are asking us to follow after them as they wander away. For the record, denying one part of the gospel means that you're denying all of the gospel. Rejecting the doctrine of the fall, the innate and individually personal sinfulness of humans, is a rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rejecting the doctrine of hell, God's just and eternal punishment on those who are still counted as sinners, is a rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second part of Peter's point in this applies to the readers. Using the false teachers as a warning, we need to make sure that we're not wandering off too. So Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Mercifully, verse 13 continue Paul, continues Paul's thoughts here in Philippians 2. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is in control of our salvation. And for those who are truly repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus, our salvation is secure. Our eternal rock of salvation, Jesus Christ, is secure, is infinitely stable, and nothing can remove from God's hand those whom the Father has given to His Son. But let's be careful not to ignore the warnings like the ones here in 2 Peter 
this verse ends with, and lose your own stability. People who have fallen into apostasy, the false teachers and those who have been carried away with their errors, are demonstrating that they're finding their stability in themselves and not in the rock of God's salvation found through repentance of sins and faith in Jesus Christ. Humans are unstable. God is not. Notice Peter's pronoun usage, your own stability. Months ago, during the first sermon in this series, we had a a topical sermon excursion in the middle of the sermon. We did a brief overview of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, eternal security. And we're going to do it again, but shorter than that time and with a slightly different tact. So, because of an anemic understanding of the whole counsel of God's Word, read the whole Bible, cover to cover. Verses like 2 Peter 1.10 and here in 3.17 can cause confusion in the minds of some. However, these verses do not contradict the many verses that explicitly and gloriously teach that God's children can never be lost. We learn from the entire true story of the Bible that there are only two types of humans, God's people and not God's people. At the beginning, after Adam and Eve joined in an alliance with serpent Satan to overthrow God's authority, we, we begin to see this. It's set up for us in Genesis 3.15 when God promises that the seed of the woman will crush serpent Satan. We know that the true seed, the true son, the the true king, the, the true priest, the true prophet, the true Israel is Jesus Christ, the final Adam. He fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15. And as we mentioned earlier, those who are repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus are in Christ. This is why Paul can write of the church in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Being in Christ means that his bride, the church, Christians, are participants in Jesus' defeat of serpent Satan. So that's God's people. However, throughout the Bible, not God's people are at odds with God's plan to save his people back to himself. This is why Jesus told the Pharisees that they were doing the work of their father, the devil. You have the seed of the devil at war with the seed of the woman. Now, because serpent Satan is cunning, he's sown his seed among God's seed. Speaking of the church, Jesus gives the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. In verses 36 through 43, he explains the parable. And his word should cause us to encourage each other and admonish each other as we've covenanted to do. Because Jesus says that at the end of the age, on the final day when he returns, those who claim to be God's children but are not will be revealed and Jesus will throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 42. It should be a terrifying thought to think that there may be someone in this room who claims to be a child of God, but who is not. This is why when we see a member of Arlington Baptist Church falling into sin, we lovingly call them to repentance. Our desire is to see them to continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, yet in faith that God is the one who works in His children. So based on the entire true story of the Bible, Jesus' parable of the wheat and tares shouldn't surprise us. Throughout the history of the nation of Israel, many Israelites gave evidence that they were not counted as one of God's people. Not God's people have always existed amongst God's people. 
Paul exegetes that history for us in Galatians 3.7 when he writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So just like Jesus' words shouldn't surprise us, neither should Peter's words here in verse 3.17. If you accept false teaching, if you are unwilling to submit to God's ethics, you may be giving evidence that you are not counted among God's people and that your stability is in, is in your own weak flesh. You are running the risk of being found out to be one of serpent Satan's seed when Jesus threshes out the world on the final day. In his commentary on this passage, Douglas Moo offers this warning. Confidence in our status with Christ should never lead to a presumption on God's grace that leads us to toy with the danger of false teachers or that negates serious striving after holiness. This is why I have named some false teachers throughout this series. We should not even toy with them. This brings us to our final point, Peter's exhortation to grow in grace. In verse 18, we find Peter's overwhelmingly main priority for his readers and in a beautiful doxology that closes this letter. But grow in grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Frankly, although I use the word exhortation to describe verse 18, this is actually more of an expression of Peter's desire. Throughout 2 Peter, he's exhorted, admonished, Warned, railed against false teachers, introduced some tough theological concepts, exhorted and admonished some more, and is now closing his letter by expressing his heart's desire and prayer for his readers, those whom he's referred to as beloved. One way to look at it is that he's turned from the negative back to the positive. And he's closing his letter where he began. So, so look over at chapter 1, verse 2 of 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. At the beginning of this letter, Peter connected grace to God's saving righteousness through Jesus Christ. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, Peter tells us that God's grace provides us the power to live godly lives. Grace is entirely a gift of God and is foundational for the life of the believer. What's more, here in verse 18 of chapter 3, we learn that we can grow in grace. That means that we can have more of God's grace in our life. Have you ever thought about that, Christian? We Christians talk about grace a lot. Frequently, we treat grace as one-off events connected to material blessings. So how did the job interview go? Interview go. Well, God was gracious. It went so well, they offered me the job. Or we say or hear things like, God's grace is so evident in so-and-so's life, he's overcome so much and now has a great job, a loving family. And please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not claiming that God's loving grace isn't evident in things like job interviews and families and material blessings, because it is. But that's not what Peter had in mind when he wrote, Grow in Grace. What Peter is thinking about here is how God's grace keeps us from apostasy and error. And this goes back to what we looked at regarding purity earlier in the sermon. We saw how Peter exhorts us to be pure in our affections for Jesus, to not be found with divided loyalties, to not be found clinging to identities other than our identity in Christ when Jesus returns. And so, do you know what's evidence of God's grace in the sense that Peter means here in verse 18? 
When the job interview doesn't go well, you don't get the job, and the Holy Spirit teaches you that your identity is fully in Christ. Your dependence and only hope is found in Jesus and not in a job. That's grace. And that's also connected to the second part of this, growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In our text, the Greek word that's translated knowledge means an intimate and informed relationship. And that knowledge is a product of conversion. Knowledge of God, in the sense Peter uses it in this letter, is a relational knowledge. It involves both heart and head. It's not just an intellectual knowledge. So friend, you may be here this morning, and you may be able to beat everyone here in a Bible trivia quiz. You may have a head full of facts about Jesus. But unless you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, you cannot grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because you do not have the type of relational knowledge that Peter is referring to here in verse 18. Earlier, I presented the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we are all born in sin. We're all rebels refusing to submit to our Creator. Because of that, humans are under God's just wrath and will suffer His eternal judgment if they die in their sinful rebellion. Graciously, Here's that word grace again. Graciously, God has provided the way for His children to be reconciled back to Him, to be saved from their sins and spared His wrath. Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the life of perfect obedience to the Father that we cannot. He then died for the sins of those who placed their faith in Him and was then raised from the dead three days later. So if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, Jesus' obedience is accounted to you. Your sins are punished on the cross and you are adopted into God's family and given new life. And that's the first step in growing in grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that, if you are still in your sins, I urge you to repent and believe. If you have questions about what that means, please find me after the service. I'll be more than happy to talk about it with you. But please do not continue to trust in your head knowledge of Jesus. For those who are repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus, how do we do what Peter says here? How do we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, Peter has already given that answer many times throughout this letter. In one place, we saw it in the list of virtues that characterize a godly life found in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1. We don't have time to go back through that list, but Peter's overall point with it is that Christians grow in faith and knowledge of Jesus by pursuing godly living as God defines godly living. What does the Bible say a virtuous life looks like? Well, read Peter's list and then look to the Bible to define that list. The life and teachings of Jesus are a good place to help you interpret Peter's list in chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. But but please understand that the Bible defines what godly living looks like and nothing else. As our church's statement of faith says, the Bible is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. I hope that you've picked up on how Peter's themes in this letter are inseparably woven to his through line of action of his desire and charge that his readers grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus, which is the positive side of the negative of avoiding apostasy, a desire and charge that is at risk of being thwarted by the false teachers. This is why Peter wrote his letter. If we're not growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus... We're running the high risk of falling into apostasy. 
How do we guard against that? And throughout the letter, Peter highlights the veracity of the Holy Scriptures, the trustworthiness of the Bible, the need to immerse ourselves in God's Word, and also the need to obey God's Word. And included in that obedience is adding to your faith virtue as defined by God in the Bible, pursuing godliness. As I've gotten older, I've become more aware of how theologically astute the simple children's song is that goes, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Sadly, we're often like Naaman, the leprous Syrian army commander who scoffed at Elisha's command to dip himself seven times in the Jordan River to be healed. Naaman wanted something flashier, more impressive. We can be the same, right? We struggle, we're tempted, we despair, we live under the constant risk of being overwhelmed by our doubts, sin, or or life circumstances. And we want something flashy and impressive from God. Often, many of us want an emotionally charged experience akin to what the disciples gathered in the upper room experienced when Jesus sent His Spirit. Some of us expect God to give us signs and wonders. Sometimes we don't know what we want, but we believe that it should be more impressive than the ordinary means of grace. The word ordinary is used to denote that these are the ways that the Holy Spirit usually works in the sanctification of God's children. But to be honest, the word ordinary can also mean that from our human perspective, the means of grace appear, well, ordinary. And for those that may not know, by ordinary means of grace, we mean the ministry of the Word, biblically rooted preaching and reading and studying the Bible, the ordinances, baptism and communion, and Lord willing, we'll celebrate communion in a few minutes, uh, and prayer. I would also fold the fellowship of the saints into that. By God's grace, Naaman listened when his servant bravely rebuked him and encouraged him to obey the ordinary command of Elisha. Are you going to trust God and listen to the ordinary commands of Peter here in 2 Peter? Or are you going to cling to your desire for something more? If you want to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, first be repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus, and then avail yourself of the ordinary commands means of grace, and pursue godly living as defined by God. Read your Bible and pray every day and pursue holiness. Be committed to placing yourself under the ministry of the Word at a gospel-preaching church. The answer is that simple. The question is, are you going to obey it? By the power of the Holy Spirit, commit to growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that only leaves Peter's beautiful and glorious doxology. And to be honest this morning, I feel utterly inadequate to add anything edifying to Peter's doxology here, so I'm simply going to read it and then close in prayer. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18b. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Father, we long for your Son and our King to return. But until that day, we long to be counted as faithful and pure. Please sanctify us by your Word, and through the power of your Spirit, make us more like Jesus. And we ask this for your glory, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we celebrate communion, we're going to sing together, He Will Hold Me Fast, which can be found as an insert in your bulletin. He Will Hold Me Fast. Trust in Jesus.
He won't ever let you go, and He will bring you safely home. Cling Cling to Jesus, Christian. Be diligent in being found spotless and blameless and at peace with God on the day of His returning. So please stand and join with me in singing, He will hold me fast.